0: Right, so we're going through the book of Exodus, really just the first half in Sunday school um, here in June and July. And we've been talking about how the book of Exodus contributes to the grand story of the Bible because it is a great story unto itself. It is actually the foundational salvation story of the Old Testament. You want to talk about what it means to be saved in the Old Testament. Everybody who knew their Bibles, every Israelite who knew knew their Bibles would have said, God saved us out of Egypt. We were slaves. And God saved us from Pharaoh and from bondage and brought us into this good land where we can serve the Lord. And, um, of course, all of that is pointing forward to Jesus, the one who brings about the ultimate exodus from bondage to sin. Um, But this is the foundational salvation story. And so the first couple chapters have been setting the stage just on on terms of Egyptian oppression, but also um, The the whole occasion for that oppression was God fulfilling the first of his promises to Abraham Which was that his people his children would become an abundant Nation um, as abundant as the stars in the sea the stars stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore Um, That already had come to pass as of Exodus 1 7 Right, and that's the reason why Pharaoh felt threatened And wanted to destroy Israel and um, reduce them and crush them. And, um, And so that's when the people are groaning out. And remember what it said in Exodus 2 at the end. How it said that God heard the groaning of his people. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God knew. He knew their suffering. He knew it was time to act. And that's why he took the initiative to call Moses. That was what we talked about last time. Exodus 3. And remember, a key part of this, just turn back there um, to Exodus 3, was the revelation of God's name. Moses says, um, if I go to your people, they'll say, what's his name? What, what's the name of the God that sent you? What shall I say to them? And God says, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. And we talked about how the name I am is related to that wonderful name Yahweh, the divine name. And anytime you see the words uh, or the word Lord in all caps, or it's sort of it's got like a drop case um, capitalization there. That is the divine name, and by um, con- long translation convention, instead of Yah- Yahweh or Jehovah, most translations just use Lord. So God has revealed His name. He's called Moses, reluctant as He is to go, and this sets up the showdown between. Um, Pharaoh and the Lord And that's what we're going to look at today We're actually going to cover uh, Seven chapters (laughs) Um, Exodus 5 through 11 We're going to look at all the plagues at once Um, They all have running themes And to get us going for the showdown I want us to turn to the end of chapter 4 This is some of the last things That Moses is um, Hearing actually it's after Moses has returned back to Jethro's father-in-law um, the Lord gives these kind of framing words about what's about to take place as Moses carries out his commission to Pharaoh. So let's look at Exodus 4, 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. And we didn't read this last time, but this is like changing the staff into a snake and everything. Okay, so do all the miracles, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Alright, so this is setting the stage for the showdown, and What I want us to reflect on are what are the terms that God sets for his, um, what does he set before Pharaoh? What must Pharaoh do, and what are those terms? Right. Let my people go. Yeah, those are the terms. It's that stark. Yeah. (laughs) Let my people go, or your son will be killed. So um, what does this indicate in terms of um, Pharaoh's rights to Israel, um, God's relationship to Pharaoh? What are some things we can derive from how God frames things here? Yes, he's pronouncing he is God over everyone, including Pharaoh. Exactly. Exactly. This is not God coming to Pharaoh as an equal saying, now look, let's have a trade, right? I'll, I'll give you this and you give me uh, the people. <laughs> no, this is God coming to Pharaoh as Pharaoh's superior, right? As Pharaoh's creator and saying, this is how it's going to be. Yeah, really good. Yeah, and uh, Pharaoh has no claim to Israel. God is just saying, he's my son. Right? And isn't that an amazing thing to just think about? Um, Israel as God's son. Indeed, his firstborn son. Um, why is that significant? Um, why, why do you think he says it that way? What, what's so important about knowing that Israel is God's son? Good. Excellent. Yeah, another Adam. Adam was the son of God after a manner, right? Um, um, It says in Genesis 5-1 that um, God made Adam in his image, and then Adam had a son after his own image. So there's a connection there. Obviously, differences. But you think back to Luke chapter 3, um, the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam. It says... um, You know, uh, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, right? So Adam is a son of God. He's a failed son, right? He sinned. Now God is adopting Israel as his new firstborn son. Uh, Firstborn, we we often think of that in terms of like birth order is the first thing that comes to mind. But firstborn is actually a um, status marker. So um, to be the firstborn means to be the heir, Okay, so um, Israel is now the heir of the Lord's uh, inheritance, which we're going to see is the land. Okay, so Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. That's going to be really important when we get to the tenth plague with Pharaoh's son. We'll get there. But, okay, so God is setting these terms. And then we see what happens the first time Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And remember, every time you see the Lord, you're thinking Yahweh, the divine name. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So, obviously, the answer initially is no, right? Now, what what does Pharaoh's response say about Pharaoh and his disposition to the Lord? What do we learn about Pharaoh's character and his disposition towards the Lord here that's right yeah I mean that's right he says he doesn't know the Lord but we know from Romans 1 that all people know him as our as our creator and yet we suppress the truth and unrighteousness so yes yeah, that's it's a This is a great example of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Like, who is this guy, the Lord, the so-called God? Uh, Pharaoh says, as if he doesn't know him, right? Good. What's that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah, great point. So there's multiple meanings and levels of the word know, right? Um, when we say somebody's a Christian, we often say he knows the Lord. When somebody's not a Christian, we say he, he or she doesn't know the Lord, right? Um, that's meaning, you know, knowing that, that that God as our God, having that personal good fellowship relationship, right? Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord in that respect, right? So in one respect, what he's saying is true. He doesn't know him, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So, and that's really important, right? Pharaoh does not recognize Yahweh as any kind of God whom he should support or honor, right? He's probably thinking, oh, it's just this God of the Hebrews, this little provincial God. We've got our pantheon of gods, right? We know them. We know Osiris. We know Ra, all these other Egyptian gods. Who's this Yahweh? Never heard of him, Right. And it's possible he never has heard the name Yahweh, right? Um, so, yeah, he's saying, who is this God, Yahweh, that I should listen to him and do this huge thing of letting this enormous people, and we know from numbers, right, that they're basically like two million people. That's a lot of slave labor, right? Why should I let him go, right? So we have this and we have the setting of the stage, just like God said. I'm, you're going to set this stage demand before pharaoh he's going to say no in fact i'm going to harden his heart we're going to see that in a moment um and so we see this initial rejection this this initial conflict where pharaoh is saying i i'm not going to do it in fact he's about to make things worse uh, for the slaves he's not going to provide straw anymore for the bricks that they were making so now their, their slavery is even harder and, of course, that sets Israel against Moses and Aaron. Like, thanks a lot, guys. Now our, our life is all the more miserable, right? Um, so we have this initial conflict, but what I want us to focus on, what I want us to remember, because it's going to be one of the three key themes that we're tracing today, is the conflict emerges from Pharaoh not knowing Yahweh, not knowing the name, not knowing who this God is, or recognizing his authority here. So this sets the stage then for um, the ten plagues. Um, Moses does the the, the en- enactment of the staff becoming a snake. And it's interesting, right, that um, Pharaoh's court magicians can do the same. And this is where we should r- recognize like, that Satan and um, those who serve him, there is occult power um, and things that Pharaoh's court magicians were able to do. Of course, anybody remember what happens with the snakes? What happens with the uh, there's there's the, there's snakes on the ground, right? And exactly, Pharaoh's uh, staves or the staves of Pharaoh's magicians are eaten by the snake. Okay, they weren't real snakes. Why is that? Okay. What, why, why do you think that? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one, one way of taking it is that it's simply a vision. Um, it's not an actual transformation. Um, the text simply says that they changed it into snakes. And, and the, the next two, first two plagues, with the water turning to blood and the frogs... It says that Pharaoh's um, court magicians were able to do the same. So at least the surface reading of the text is that they did have some kind of occult power to um, re- reproduce on a small scale. But, yeah, it's certainly possible, too, that, um, that there's a, it's m- not a n- literal transformation. I'm not sure that the text is um, demanding one transli- one interpretation over another. I have to think about that a bit. Um, but yeah, um, okay, so we got these 10 plagues. And what I want us to think about is that as these plagues are mounting, God saying, okay, here's, here's Pharaoh, if you don't let my uh, people go, here's the first thing that's going to happen. I'm going to turn the water to blood. I'm going to cause these frogs to come out of the Nile. And as these things are happening, there's a pattern that starts to emerge, and it has to do with Pharaoh's heart. And I want to read some of these passages to you kind of in a stream, and then I want us to see if we can put some pieces together. So in some of these, especially the early ones, it says this. So Exodus seven thirteen. this is actually technically not after one of the plagues, but after the sign of the snake. It says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Think about that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. And then, after the frogs, the frogs come up out of the Nile and uh, carving the whole land, creating just a horrible mess. It says, um, when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, this is after Moses prayed and the frogs went away. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, this is Exodus eight fifteen, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. In other words, to Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. Same thing after the livestock are struck. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then, um, again, eight nineteen. this is after the gnats. Um, the magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, like, we can't do this. This is incredible. And Pharaoh says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen. And then we have some of the later ones. Boils, the locusts, the darkness, and then the death of the firstborn, and even um, the pursuit towards um, the Red Sea. It says in all of those, 10.1 um, um, here, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And later ones it will say, um, you know Exodus 14:17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in. In other words, into the Red Sea after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. So, did anybody detect as I went through those? Uh, sorry, ra- rather quickly, but anybody detect the differences between how each of those um, are worded? Um, the 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 hardening. Did anybody notice how the hardening? differed in how it was worded yeah exactly yes so some of them it says pharaoh hardened his heart so active use of the verb right pharaoh hardened his heart so what's happening he's he's responding to, in many cases, the respite that God gives in response to his, the prayers of Moses and saying, well, now I don't have to do what I said I would do. Let them go, right? Because sometimes what will happen is um, the the plague will be upon them, and Pharaoh's like, fine, fine, I'll let them go, I'll let them go. Just make it stop. And then it does stop. And then he says, well, maybe I won't, right? So he's hardening his heart, right? But then there are others where it, it's just sort of um, – it's passive without stating who is doing it, so Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and it's like, okay, did he harden it himself, or is God hardening it? It's unstated, but then, as Mike was pointing out, there's lots of these, i think uh five of them, where it says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, so what are we to make of that how does how why why is why is it saying it this way? What do you think is like sort of the, the payoff, the theological payoff, and the, uh, you know, the, the the way in which it helps us understand the story. To recognize that there's both hardening of Pharaoh's own heart, Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and also the Lord hardening him. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's re- it's really getting us into that issue of human choice and divine sovereignty, right? And and I appreciate what you're getting at. Like, these are not meant to be in tension. They're actually complementary to each other. And and it even you could say, and I don't think it it would be theologically incorrect to say it. That even in those places where Pharaoh says, Pharaoh's doing the hardening, it's still the Lord who sovereignly is willing that that would be what, what is the case. And, and there's, a, there's a challenge for us there, right? Because like, wait, so God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he chooses to disobey? Right? I think we should be wrestling with the sense of like, what what's going on there? And um, maybe one text that will help us to think this through is chapter 9. Let's just turn there and reflect on this together. This is sometimes in the midst of one of the plagues, you'll get a greater, kind of deeper dive into one angle of what's going on. So look at Exodus nine thirteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. So this is what... We're hearing over and over again in these plagues. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And then he's about to introduce the next plague, the heavy hail that will destroy the livestock. So as you reflect on those verses I just read, 9, 13 through 17, how does it help us understand what's going on with God hardening Pharaoh's heart? How does it give us um, a greater perspective on what he's doing? Yeah. Yeah, where'd you get that from? This all to the glory of God. I think you're right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, everything is always motivated by the glory of God, showing forth His excellence. And that phrase, "the glory of God," it can, it could kind of be Christianese if if we're not familiar with what the meaning of the words are, but the glory of God is just making known God's excellence, right? So he is excellent in every respect. Glory is the, is the shining forth of that excellence so that we can see it. Uh, as one of, one of my mentors said, um, God's glory is his excellence made known. And I think that's a great definition. So what excellence of God is being made known He says, for this reason, I've raised you up so that I might, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What excellence, what aspect of his awesome name is being proclaimed? Okay, good. Yeah, so excellent uh, focusing in on verse 16 where he says, I'm showing my power. That's a key attribute that's being shown forth here. I mean, think about all these different plagues. Um, Awesome works of nature, right? Um, Clearly, the person who's doing this is sovereign over creation, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, anything that we do, even in rebellion against God, is still by his power, <laughs> right? Yeah. Good. So, um, yeah, and not just pride of the Egyptians that they're doing it on their own, but also pride in their gods, right? And this is something we're going to talk about um, in a moment as God triumphing over the gods of the Egyptians through these plagues. Um, we'll save that for a moment, but um, Okay, so think about this for a second. For this purpose, verse 16, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power. Again, I, I want us to actually, like, stew on this a little bit. Do, do you understand what he's saying is that God is raising up Pharaoh and hardening Pharaoh so that he might judge Pharaoh and show his power? Right, and I, I, th- I think we can appreciate that this is, this is a hard thing to swallow, <laughs> right? Like, wait, you, you're raising up this this human being, this this person, to destroy them so you can show your power. Like, can you appreciate the the challenge that's that's being issued here? Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, when we when we meet Rahab in the book of Joshua, it's clear that all the Canaanites have heard what has happened. And even uh, 1 Samuel 4, um, this is hundreds of years later, um, the Philistines are still talking about all the plagues that this God did. Um, to Egypt so yeah um, this is a this is a public act being done on a public stage Um, as the book of Acts says about the crucifixion of Jesus right this was not done in a corner right this is something that God is publicly doing to the to to all to show all the nations his excellence Yeah, and I I guess I just want us to reflect on like uh, basically Romans 9 that that God is the the, the one who is free to do this with his creation I think in our You know very human centered world that we're living in now part of the offense of this Is wait a second. How can god do this to pharaoh? Well, he has the right to do this. Um, and let's just look together at romans 9 Uh Fourteen. That's right. Yeah, this is not his first public act. It's of judgment. Yeah, the the destruction of the entire world in the days of uh, Noah. So this this is um, in this chapter of Romans, Paul is citing the very chap or the very verses we just read from Exodus nine, and he's talking about. Um, the issue of God choosing some and not others, choosing to show mercy to some and not others. And he's just said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And now verse 14, what shall we say then? This is Romans nine fourteen. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy in whom I have mercy. I will have compassion in whom I have compassion. That's a quote from Exodus 33. We'll eventually get there. Um, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's the sovereign one. He gets to choose. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Here it is, Exodus 9. That I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Like, is Pharaoh being judged because God hardened his heart and there's nothing he could do to resist God's hardening of his heart? Um, And what's Paul's response? Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So what what's Paul's point here? How does Paul help us to process um, God taking Pharaoh and hardening him and judging him and his people, and then taking Israel and not hardening them, but instead liberating them? How does how does Paul help us understand the justice of God? In doing both of those things. Yeah, Mike. Yes. (laughs) Right. He does not downplay God's sovereignty so that it all seems fair. And it's really a human choice. Right. In fact, he's very explicit. This is God's choice. He did freely choose to do this. Right. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so many of the objections against God's sovereignty has at least implicitly in mind this idea of, well, if God is sovereign and he hardens Pharaoh's heart, that means that now Pharaoh, who would have, um, you know, he, he, he could have chosen to obey God um, is now being dragged kicking and screaming to something he doesn't want to do, which is rebelling against God, right? And actually, the whole point of me sharing um, that part about all the places where he says is hardening his own heart is showing that simultaneous to this being God's choice, his sovereign choice to harden Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself is also actively choosing the evil. He wants to disobey God, and he is choosing that, it is a real choice, even while it's also something that is completely under the sovereignty of God. Yeah, Doug? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and yeah, just remembering what, what Doug's bringing out. Like, all of us have hearts of stone, to use the language of Ezekiel, right? Um, naturally, in our sin, in our c- just native-born corruption. It's what total depravity means, right? And we cannot choose anything good. And so Pharaoh's expressing that here, um, and God is hardening that still more. Um, we know from Romans 1, another verse that's relevant here, that part of how God judges sin is giving us over to our sin. So Romans one twenty four, in this case talking about homosexuality, it says, um, for these people who did not repent, it says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So he, he takes, this is part of his justice, he takes the trajectory that our hearts are already choosing and he says, I'm giving you what you want. Right, And so part of hardening is God giving us over to what our hearts are already actively choosing. How do we put all the pieces together? Well, here's how our confession does it, I think, in a very balanced way. So if you're feeling a little confused, how can this be all true at the same time? These, these two readings uh, here, I think, helpfully distill what Romans 9 and uh, Exodus are saying. On the one hand, we have uh, Westminster Confession three one. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So he's the author of the history of the world. Everything that happens. And yet, the very next thing they say, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. So, We say he is sovereign over all things. That means even the worst things of history are part of his plan. Um, We have this explicitly in Genesis 50 verse 10 with um, Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that evil act that they did was part of God's intention for a good thing. And then um, Acts 2.23, Peter saying, um, this Jesus whom you crucified, you know, the most horrific sin in all of history. This is what God had long planned and ordained um, for our salvation. So God is sovereign over all things, including the very hard things, including the sin here of Pharaoh. It's part of his plan, and yet still Pharaoh's making real choices. He's, he's making a real choice, and God is not the author of sin. No, Pharaoh is the one who is. Um, The author of his own sin. So How do you really put all those things together? I think what's helpful about the confession is they're saying look we can't explain all these details There's deep mystery here, but we can certainly draw this box around What the scriptures are saying and we can we can say here are some of the limits We're not going to say that God is the author of sin nor are we going to say that everybody's just a puppet We do make real choices Um, Yeah Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, to, not just to trust when we understand and when it all makes sense and it's all clear and we don't have any questions, but even trusting his word when it confuses us, right? <laughs> it's still his word. Yeah, and then I think the other piece is really going to introduce our second theme that we're going to talk about. We've just been talking about the hardening theme, God's will to save his people through hardening Pharaoh, giving him over to his sin. But also there's this theme of his glory. We've already been touching on it. Um, but this is what Westminster Confession 3.7 says just a little bit later. It says, talking about the reprobate, those whom God did not choose for salvation, it says this, the rest of mankind that God didn't choose for salvation, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures To pass by. So the rest of mankind, God's passing by and ordaining them to dishonor and wrath for their sin. And then this is the key phrase to the praise of his glorious justice. To the praise of his glorious justice. And I want us just to stew and reflect on that for a second. How is it possible that God's justice could be a glorious thing? Let's look for a second at a few texts. Back in Exodus five through eleven, I'm just going to step through these quickly. But this is this is the that you may know theme. Exodus eight ten. This keeps coming up in the uh, in the plague narrative. Um, Moses said, "Be it as you as you say, um, that you can that you can uh, you're saying that they can go free." Moses says, "Be it as you say, so that you may know." You, Pharaoh, may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Or 8.22, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. This is what God says, where my people dwell. That's where, so there's the land of Goshen where the Israelites are dwelling. So that no swarms of flies will be there. So all these plagues are coming on the Egyptians, but they're not coming on Israel. This is part of the sign to Pharaoh of, hey, this is not just sort of some random Um, occurrence. No, do you think there might be a coincidence that like all these things, are these terrible plagues are happening to the rest of Egypt, but here's this one pocket, Goshen, that's not being hit with the swarms of flies or anything else. I'm going to set apart the land of Goshen that you may know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. 9.14, that you may know that there's none like me. 9.29, as soon as I've gone out of the city I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord Moses says, the thunder will cease there will be no more hail so that you Pharaoh may know that the earth is the Lord's and then one more attend to that you may tell and this is now talking to um, Moses talking to the um, Israelites that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I I am Yahweh. That you may know. That you may know. That you may know. What is the thing God wants everybody to know? Not just Pharaoh, but the Israelites and really all the nations. What's the thing that He wants them to know? That He is the Lord. And what is implied in that? That He says, I am Yahweh. That you're on the right track. I want you to know the name Yahweh. I want you to know my fame. My awesomeness? What, what about me? Does he want them to know? Yeah, we are the, he's the creator. We are the clay. He is sovereign over the earth, right? When it says that the earth is the Lord's, right? Or, uh, 9.29. Um, good. Other thoughts that you may know? Yeah And this is totally against the polytheistic mindset which says you know There's the gods of egypt and there's the gods of this land and there's the gods of this land And every god has their own little territory, right? The whole point of genesis 1 which is really the prologue to the whole exodus story The whole point of genesis 1 or one of the key points is to say this God is the God who is sovereign over the entire world. He created everything and so whether you're in Egypt or whether you're you know in Israel or wherever you are, he is the King. He's the creator yeah that's right yeah psalm 24 one the earth is the Lord's and everything in it um, and so there's this recognition that he wants everybody to have, that I am the king over all the spheres of the universe, including the entirety of creation, and as we're about to see, also over the realm of the spirits. Um, I am the one who's king over all. It really goes back, I think, to Exodus 5, 2, which we were just looking at the beginning. I think it's very purposeful that this particular word of Pharaoh is recorded for us when he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Right? That, that sense of like, so Yahweh, no idea what, what, you know, there's no recognition. Now, everyone will know the name Yahweh. He is the great God who is over all things. And this is why you should let his people go, because he's the king over all. And so let's just reflect on this. God's showing his glory, his sovereignty over all things, and he's also showing forth his justice against Pharaoh and his hosts. He's, saying, he's doing all of these judgment things to show his glory. He's, he's wanting us to praise his glorious justice. Proverbs 21.15 says this, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. But terror to evildoers. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. In other words, we should be happy. Psalms 9, 2 and 3. I will be glad and exult in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. Right? So, I will be glad. Sing for joy. When my enemies perish. Or one more. This is like a a particularly picking these from the Psalms. Because these are all like kind of like happy praise songs. Um, The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. Psalms 18 verse 46. But did you know what 47 says? Blessed be the rock, the, the God of my salvation. The God who gave me Vengeance. And subdued peoples under me. Here, David speaking as the king. Um, and then one more verse: Revelation eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, speaking now um, about the great city Babylon, which represents all the world opposed to God. Alas, alas! For the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So what I want us to reflect on is, how can it be a good thing to praise the justice of God? And then we're going to also have to think about how how do we need to protect our hearts here as well? There can be a bad way <laughs> of rejoicing in his justice, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, when we think of human anger and, you know, someone punches you, you punch them back. That's not glorious. Right? That's that's us just um in anger lashing out, right? Different with God, right? His justice is always perfect. It's always according to the sin, uh, proper and appropriate. And we're about to see some ways in which, um, in the case of Pharaoh, it's very much a just punishment. What else? What what other ways um, can we enter into this idea of praising God for his justice? I mean, I think we're used to praising God for his mercy, for his goodness, his wisdom, his holiness, his justice how how are we to praise him for his justice how does his justice show forth his excellence yeah james yeah yeah exactly uh, uh, with um God's justice being shown against Pharaoh, what's happening? Simultaneous to him bringing Pharaoh low, he's also bringing Israel, who is oppressed, up. And he's delivering and vindicating the oppressed. And so his justice is protective, right? Um, Yeah, really, really important theme in the Bible of God being the God of the oppressed and of the afflicted. And certainly this is like class A example, yeah. mm-hmm yes yeah mm-hmm yeah the world is not as it ought to be <laughs> yeah mm-hmm yes Yeah, it really, it's God's justice that is the means by which we get to Revelation 21, God wiping away every tear. Right? It's Him making things right. Finally, finally, all the wrongs that have been done will receive their just reward. Right? And will will finally be put to rest, so that we can certainly say, okay, the book is closed. Right? And and now we can move forward. Um, not with having things hanging over us, and all the stuff that was disrupting this world and making it so broken, all of that brokenness has finally been cast away into the lake of fire, never to be seen again. Praise the Lord, right? Will we not certainly say, God, you're an awesome God. Who could have righted the wrongs of this world apart from you, (laughs) right? And I just want us to reflect on that, that like what we will be praising God for for all eternity will not just be his mercy and his goodness and his love, it will also be his glorious justice, which is part of how he shows his goodness and his mercy and his love. Um, those those all go together, right? They're, as you're all pointing out, those all mix together. Um, you, you start at any one of God's attributes, his justice, you're going to make your way to all the other attributes, his wisdom, his love. His, his justice is a holy justice and a wise justice and a loving justice. Um, and, and, certainly his justice is good now in the same token we could take this the wrong way and this is where i just want to warn us briefly before we talk very briefly about the final theme um this can turn into kind of a sick sadism right where we're just sort of like we're really glad that pharaoh got torched um in the sort of sick sense of like ha ha my enemies got it um and this kind of glee at other people's misery, uh, that's, not, that's not God's attitude. We know that from uh, Ezekiel 18. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? God says, no. I, I really love it when they turn and repent and come to me. Um, so God does this, and it is his good and holy work. But um, we shouldn't think of this as sort of like a, a sick gladness in, in uh, destroying human life. Uh, Pharaoh's is a tragic story, right? He was an image-bearer. He was made to be glorious, and yet he rejected that, and God gave him what his rejection deserved. Okay, one last theme I want to at least sound here because it's really important for the plagues, and it's what we read in Exodus 12.12. Exodus 12.12, and this is leading up to the final plague. So we've, we've already seen the first nine. Um horrible afflictions of the destruction of um, livestock, of, um, you know, the darkness. Um, and then it says, Exodus twelve twelve. it says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. This is the night of the Passover. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So a couple things here. One is we see the justice, right? So Pharaoh would not let God's son go, his firstborn son. So what happens to Pharaoh's firstborn son? Justly, you know, uh, there is a, um, what we call a measure for measure, eye for an eye, justice. This is a huge theme through the Bible. God always giving what the sins themselves deserved. Um, There's a match between the punishment fitting the crime, right? And that's what's happening here. Pharaoh's firstborn dying because he would not let Yahweh's firstborn go. But then there's also this piece. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And um, this isn't something that, like, is explicitly sounded in the text in any kind of, like, open way. But it would have been readily apparent to early listeners. And this is one of those places where um, the backgrounds of the Old Testament, the, the sort of extra-biblical sources that we have, can help fill things out. And so um, many scholars have noted that um, all of the plagues that God brings in some way are, are pointed at particular gods of the Egyptians. So there was the river god. The river Nile was deified as the god Happy Not a happy God, but, (laughs) yeah, happy. And the flooding was the work of Osiris. What happened when the Nile flooded and became a source of death and not of life? God discredited both of those gods simultaneously. There was the frog-headed goddess Hecht, the consort of Khnum, who was associated with fertility and was supposed to have been with women in childbirth. Now what happens with the frogs? The frogs come forth and bring forth death. And God is judging, again, tit for tat, kind of justice here. um, The very God, uh, the Pharaoh who was trying to employ the midwives to bring death. Now God judges the God of the midwives, the Egyptian God of the midwives, um, by bringing death through these frogs. Um, And then all the others are similar, especially darkness. Is a reason why darkness is the climactic, second to, second to the most climactic plague, uh, because the supreme God was Ra, the sun god, and now Ra is shamed with the darkness. God is superior to Ra. And Pharaoh was understood to be a manifestation of Ra in the flesh. So the final judgment on Pharaoh's son is saying, look, This one in whom you understand to be divine, Pharaoh and his son, these supposedly divine people, um, no, they're going to die. Again, showing God's justice over the Egyptian gods. He's beating them on their own turf, or I don't really like that as much as God's beating them on God's turf, right? He's showing that this isn't actually your turf. Uh, The Nile doesn't belong to you. Um, Happy and Osiris belongs to me. And so God is enlisting all of creation to judge the Egyptians. He's turning creation upside down. And he's not just judging the Egyptians. He's judging their gods and shaming their gods and showing the gods of the Egyptians to be no gods. So any questions on this third theme? You understand that's like another running thing, showing God's supremacy, not just over Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but also over their gods. All right, well, I always want to conclude with talking about Jesus. So we've seen a number of themes. We've seen God's sovereignty over our hearts, his ability to harden Pharaoh's heart, justly so. We've seen the praise of his glorious justice as being one of the great ways in which he exalts his name in the Egyptian exodus, uh, the exodus out of Egypt. And we've seen God's triumph over the gods, over the false gods of Egypt as one of the things that he does in creation, So, uh, in, in, in this judgment over or using creation. So, in any of those do you see trajectories towards Jesus or pointers to Jesus? Remember, the entire Exodus story is pointing us to him, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so Pilate, um, you know, Jesus saying to Pilate, you would have no authority unless it were given to you from heaven, right? Um, God's sovereign even over Pilate's hardening his heart, right? Um, and yeah, very good. Yeah, and there's other hard hearts in Jesus's story too, right? The, all the um, Israelite or uh, you know uh, Jewish leaders uh, hardening themselves against all the ways in which Jesus was showing himself to be, um, the, right? And that's a chilling thing, right? That what, in the first Exodus, it was Pharaoh whose heart was hardened, obviously the enemy. Um, now, who's the real enemy, right? It's not just Pilate and Herod and guys like that. It's also um, even some of God's own people, right? Um, yeah, good. Did, did I see your hand? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that, that um, worship of the unknown God, right? <laughs> um, what's going on? God's saying, look, you guys are directing worship to entirely the wrong place. I now declare to you who the true God is, right? And and remembering that the, the cross is about God exalting his name. And his name is exalted in his glorious justice, right? Jesus receiving in himself the just punishment for our sin. But isn't it incredible the climactic expression of God's name is his mercy, right, Um, even through justice. So we praise him for that and his love. Um, Lots of other things we could say, Jesus triumphing over the gods, Colossians 2, um, and other pointers too, but we're out of time, so we should close in prayer. Lord, thank you for um, Jesus, the great um, demonstration of your glorious justice and your glorious mercy in in himself in one act of great redeeming grace. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you who um, destroyed Pharaoh and uh, his firstborn son in an act of great and awesome justice against Pharaoh, that, Lord, you were willing to send your firstborn son to be slain for us so that we, hard that we were in our sin, would be rescued and would be enabled to leave behind the bondage of sin and actually live. Lord, we are so thankful, thankful for your mercy. And Lord, we pray that your name would be famous, that everybody would know the great name of God, the God who sent his son to die for us. Help us to make your name famous by how we live, how we speak. We do look forward to the day when in your glorious justice you'll make all things right. May you hasten that day. We pray in Jesus' name. All right, thanks for